How We Got Here, Part 3, The Attack on Worker Power. Back when sheltering in place first began in California, I started interviewing essential workers, the people who are keeping life going during the pandemic. I spoke with a lot of workers in grocery stores. Some had unions that were fighting for things like extra hazard pay and time off, and others didn't. I talked to this one worker at a non-unionized store who said they were feeling totally alone. One of the things that makes me sad about this is there was a moment when it, when this first started where, where I, I felt a tiny bit of pride. I was like, I feel good that I can sit here and put on a brave face and, you know, help people stock up on stuff that they need so they can self-isolate. The worker asked to be anonymous for fear of retaliation from their managers. They say as the weeks wore on, that feeling of pride faded away and they felt more and more abused. The company was raking in cash. It was having some of the best days it had ever had. But all the workers got was this little discount coupon to use at the store and one extra day off per year. No hazard pay, no protective equipment. My mom made me a couple of cloth masks. The workers said they felt underappreciated, underpaid, and at risk. So some of them at the store started trying to form a union. And so just the idea that there would be someone to look out for us that wasn't just that wasn't just viewing us as, you know, cogs in a big machine that only that they only have to deal with when something's wrong would be great. I would love I, I would I would love that. Now, unions have a long and complicated history, and they aren't all the same. Like any institution, a union can be corrupted, and some have. There has been graft, unscrupulous leaders, abusive power, and hierarchies that look a lot like the ones in corporations. There has been exclusion and racism and unions that protect their members' interests over those of the public, like, say, police unions. But if you look at the major protections and benefits for workers in America, so many of them happen because of union organizing. The eight-hour workday, minimum wage, vacation time, sick pay, social security, stuff that many people now take for granted. But now, and at the start of the pandemic, most workers were like that grocery store employee, all on their own. Only one in 10 American workers are unionized. But in the 1950s, when unions were at their peak, one in three Americans were in a union. This decline is the result of a decades-long attack. Like with the removal of benefits, this has been a slow chipping away. And it's been accomplished mostly through the tools in one single piece of legislation that became law over 70 years ago, the Labor Management Relations Act of 1947, better known as Taft-Hartley. Taft-Hartley has played a major role in curbing unions in America, and the law was a result of a backlash to growing union power. The story of how this legislation came to be begins in the 1930s, when the country was in the middle of the Great Depression. Conditions for workers were bleak. And out in the country, too, men are asking, what's wrong? What's happening? Farm prices have dropped disastrously, and a man's work no longer brings him a just return. The threat of foreclosure of losing house and home spreads through the conservative farmlands and radical talk is boiling into action. This desperation would lead to a major increase in union power. In 1932, voters chose Franklin Delano Roosevelt over the incumbent Herbert Hoover. FDR won in a landslide, and he brought big Democratic majorities with him in the House and Senate. 
In his inaugural speech, FDR didn't pull any punches about the desperate state of the country. The withered leaves of industrial enterprise lie on every side. Farmers find no market for their produce, and the savings of many years in thousands of families are gone. More important, a host of unemployed citizens face the grim problem of existence and an equally great number toil with little return. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. The solution of the FDR administration was to pass a series of laws that created new government programs, regulated the financial system, and increased benefits and protections for workers. This, of course, was FDR's New Deal. One of the keystones was the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, or the Wagner Act. It was a major win for unions. The law expanded their power to strike and bargain for higher wages. But as soon as the Wagner Act became law, business owners and some politicians attacked it. Over the next two years, there were over a hundred lawsuits filed against striking workers. And eventually, the issue went to the Supreme Court, which upheld the Wagner Act barely. In a series of five to four decisions, the Supreme Court upholds the Wagner Act, and broad New Deal legislation becomes constitutional by the deciding vote of a single justice. This ruling was a huge victory for workers. For the next decade, they would gain more and more leverage, especially after World War II. Soldiers who were returning from the war wanted better treatment, pay, and benefits on the job. So they joined unions and went on strike. Over 4 million Americans were involved in strikes between 1945 and 1946. It was known as the Great Strike Wave. This was the closest the U.S. had ever come to a nationwide general strike. In 1946, there actually was a general strike in Oakland. Business owners and conservative politicians were terrified of a working-class uprising. Western Electric employees swelled the growing total of striking workers throughout the country. Thousands of New York telegraph workers also walk out and picket Western Union buildings, crippling telegraphic communications. These strikes worried a lot of voters, too. And before FDR died in 1945, he'd already lost some of the support he had for the New Deal. More Republicans and pro-business Democrats had gotten elected to Congress. And other Democratic Party leaders, they pushed FDR to choose a more moderate vice president, Harry Truman, who became president after FDR's death. These changes in Congress provided the opening to water down the Wagner Act. In 1947, Republican Senator Robert Taft and Congressman Fred Hartley introduced a bill to curb union power. Here's Taft. The Taft-Hartley Act was written for only one purpose, to restore justice and equality in labor management relations. This bill had a lot of support in Congress, which had gotten more conservative since the beginning of the New Deal era. Labor leaders, they knew this law would be a huge blow if it passed. Washington is under a virtual state of siege during the closing hours of the Taft-Hartley labor bill fight as forces of labor staged last-minute demonstrations to defeat the measure. Taft-Hartley has a number of provisions to hurt workers. First, it makes a bunch of strike actions illegal, like solidarity strikes, political strikes, and wildcat strikes. These are the kind of tactics that had helped get the eight-hour workday and the 40-hour work week. It also limited who could join a union, preventing independent contractors, managers, and supervisors from taking part. When the bill made it through Congress, President Truman vetoed it. He wasn't as pro-labor as FDR, but he still thought this bill went too far. The Taft-Hartley bill 
is a shocking piece of legislation. Even so, the law passed easily. Most of the Democrats in Congress abandoned Truman and sided with the Republicans. The House promptly overrides the veto by a four-to-one vote. As bad as Taft-Hartley was for unions at the time, the story would get worse for workers in the long run. Because inside Taft-Hartley, there are all kinds of weapons that could be used against unions. For instance, the law made it a lot easier for executives to replace striking workers and stop them from organizing unions at all. It also allowed state lawmakers to pass legislation that undermined union solidarity. But for decades after Taft-Hartley was passed, the provisions in it weren't really used to their fullest extent. They were kept in check by public opinion and by the fact that the economy was doing well for both workers and business owners. But all that changed in the 1980s, when there was a major turning point in the weaponization of Taft-Hartley. It happened in the morning of August 3rd, 1981. The Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO, had been negotiating a new contract with the Federal Aviation Administration for more than six months. But talks had broken down over a 32-hour work week, $10,000 more in pay per year, and earlier retirement. Nearly 13,000 air traffic controllers went on strike. Our members are prepared to do whatever is necessary. They are, they are aware of the consequences, and uh, jail is one of those that they are, uh, uh, one of those consequences. Just hours later, President Ronald Reagan came out on the lawn of the Rose Garden to make an announcement. This morning at 7 a.m., the union representing those who man America's air traffic control facilities called a strike. TV news crews were streaming Reagan's speeches to houses across the nation. It is for this reason that I must tell those who fail to report for duty this morning, they are in violation of the law, and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. End of statement. There's a part of Taft-Hartley that says presidents can order workers back to the job if they consider the strike a threat to national security. Reagan was invoking this law. Most of the air traffic controllers didn't back down. They refused to go back to work. 48 hours later, the federal government fired almost all of them. And just two months after that, the Federal Labor Relations Authority decertified the air traffic controllers union. It no longer exists. This moment was a test of worker power. Would an American president face backlash for going on national TV and publicly attacking a union like this? Would this make it harder for him to win re-election? The answer was a resounding no. The FAA hired new air traffic controllers, business went back to normal, and three years later, the public re-elected Ronald Reagan. Thank you. I am... I, uh, I think that's just been arranged. Now, in the decades before the 80s, presidents had fought with unions. They'd even used Taft-Hartley to order people on strike back to work. But they'd never done it like Reagan did. Listen to how deferential Richard Nixon is in this TV announcement he made about postal workers who were on strike in 1970. From the time I came to Congress 23 years ago, I have recognized that the hundreds of thousands of fine Americans in the mail service, the post office department, are underpaid, and they have other legitimate grievances. 
And then, when the longshoremen went on strike a little later, Nixon waited almost a hundred days before invoking Taft-Hartley to make them return to work. A few years later, in 1977, when Jimmy Carter was president, he tried to use Taft-Hartley for a coal miner strike. The workers ignored it, and they weren't fired. This is why Reagan's decision was so shocking. Just four years later, he went on national TV and publicly threatened to fire more than 10,000 workers just 48 hours after they went on strike. Taft-Hartley had never been used as publicly or as aggressively as this. There are a few reasons why it was different this time. First, the U.S. was in a recession and government budgets had been cut. Second, the public didn't sympathize with PACO's demands for more pay, a shorter work week, and early retirement. In a Gallup poll taken just a few days after Reagan fired the air traffic controllers, 59% of Americans said they approved of how he handled the issue. But this specific decision with one union, it had giant ripple effects. When Reagan showed that he could attack unions so directly, it opened the floodgates. Managers and executives began to use Taft-Hartley to go after the employees organizing in their workplaces. You don't have to be a president to use Taft-Hartley to crush worker power. And from the 80s onward, employers started using parts of this law to do just that. There are three major ways Taft-Hartley was leveraged against unions after Reagan fired the air traffic controllers. First, the suppression of strikes through fear. Before the 80s, there was a lot of social pressure against even temporarily replacing workers on strike. But after Reagan fired the air traffic controllers, workers became afraid that managers and executives could not only temporarily replace them, but replace them for good, and that politicians, judges, and the public would side with their bosses. Second, business owners lobbied states to pass laws that make it harder for unions to collect dues. Taft-Hartley legalized these laws, which have been problematically branded as right-to-work legislation. These laws mean that even if management at a company has a contract with a union, it can still bring on new workers who don't pay union dues. These laws deal a major blow to worker solidarity because they undermine the finances of a union. More and more states have passed these laws. Michigan, a state considered a cradle of the union movement, today struck a blow against organized labor. That was in 2012. Wisconsin passed the law in 2015. More drama in Madison as the state Senate votes on the controversial right to work bill. The legislation passed. These laws now exist in 27 states. And third, Taft-Hartley allows managers to force workers to watch anti-union propaganda on the job. Companies started hiring production studios to make videos to show new workers. And today, these videos are just a normal part of onboarding at America's biggest employers, like Amazon. We are not anti-union, but we are not neutral either. We do not believe unions are in the best interest of our customers, our shareholders, or most importantly, our associates. Our business Here's an anti-union video shown to workers at Walmart. Now, you might have heard stories on the news, read about it in the paper, or seen it on the internet, but labor unions are really interested in Walmart and have spent millions of dollars specifically focused on us. Now, I think you know by now that our company prefers to have open and direct communication with our associates. We don't think that a labor union is necessary here. And because our associates... And here's another one from Target. We're a Target because we're a threat to unions, the unions that represent grocery store workers. When we take business away from unionized grocery stores, that means they need fewer employees. And fewer grocery store employees mean fewer union members. And fewer members, well, 
That's a problem for the union business. That's right. I said business. Union business. Over the decades, Taft-Hartley has been used more and more to chip away at union power. For workers, the decline of unions is one reason wages have stayed mostly flat for 50 years. How flat? Well, just look at the federal minimum wage. Adjusted for inflation, it was $12 an hour at its peak in 1968. Today, it's just $7.25 an hour. With the attack on unions and the suppression of wages, income inequality continues to rise. At the same time business owners have been using Taft-Hartley more and more aggressively, politicians haven't updated the remaining worker protections established by the Wagner Act back in 1935. The point is that almost any piece of regulation of business gets worn down over time and needs to be upgraded and reformed. Uh, If you don't get that, it becomes uh, relatively meaningless. This is Larry Mitchell. He was president of the Economic Policy Institute for 15 years. In the late 70s, Larry had a glimmer of hope that lawmakers would take a step to protect workers. June 1978. A bill called the Labor Reform Act was on the floor of the Senate. And I was standing in the lobby of the Senate when it happened. The bill proposed modest changes. That would have made, uh, corrected some of the problems in union organizing and and made it uh, easier for unions to organize. Democrats thought they finally had the votes for one law to help out unions. But then came Utah Republican Senator Orrin Hatch, who was in his first term at the time. He led a long filibuster to sink the proposal. Larry says since the New Deal, federal lawmakers have not passed a single major pro-union piece of legislation. Because politicians have not updated laws to protect unions, it's made it a lot easier for business owners to get around the legal protections for them that do exist. Here's one really clear example of how this happens. The Wagner Act makes it illegal to fire workers just for trying to start a union. You can't say, hey, you know what? You're trying to organize, I'm gonna fire you. But in the 80s, big companies realized they could still basically fire organizing workers by gaming the court system. They'd fire the workers and then use their deep pockets to draw out court cases for years. And they felt safe that public outcry wouldn't hurt business enough to make it so it wasn't worth doing. Here's Larry Mitchell again. There's really no penalty for employers to violate the law, to to fire people uh, for trying to unionize even though that's their legal right. The penalty for that is basically after you win a case, which would take three, five, seven years, the employer is responsible for giving you your job back and paying you back pay. This is a calculation that works out for business owners. Maybe they'll win some court cases, lose others, but in the end, it's all cheaper than having to fight a union. And it discourages workers from organizing in the first place. Because what worker who got fired and lost their income for trying to start a union could afford to wait years in court for justice? Between business owners expanding Taft-Hartley and politicians failing to pass new legislation to protect workers, unions have declined severely. Now, stronger unions won't suddenly fix everything for workers, but not having them at all, that's left many essential workers right now increasingly on their own. Remember the grocery store worker we talked to in the beginning? They just want to know that a union has their back. And so just the idea that there would be someone to look out for us that wasn't just that wasn't just viewing us as you know cogs in a big machine that only that they only have to deal with when something's wrong would be great i would love i i would i would love that 
next time. And the idea is that it used to be everybody who worked for a company actually was an employee of that company. How managers and executives turn more and more full-time employees into contractors, part-timers, temps, and gig workers. How We Got Here is made by KQED's Alan Montecilio, Chris Hoff, and Sam Harnett. In 1934, workers staged a general strike in San Francisco. This is news coverage from a British program called Movie Tone News. Conditions in San Francisco get worse before they get better. Constant clashes on the waterfront between dockers and police. A general strike of all unionists in the city. Paralysis of the public services. This scene shows the police using tear gas bombs to disperse strikers. Three are dead and a hundred injured in the riots. The general situation is so bad that the National Guardsmen or volunteer militia have to be called out to patrol the dockside area. Extreme measures of protection gradually restore order. And in the event, the general strike is called off.